Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we are recording from the exhibit hall here at AOC 2022. Each day of the show this week, we are bringing you special episodes covering topics related to the theme uh, in EMSO Playbook. Uh, Yesterday, we were privileged to have John Knowles. He's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Defense. And today, I am here with Mr. David Tremper. He is the Director of Electronic Warfare in the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. And in this role, Dave is the senior leader in DOD providing guidance and advocacy for the U.S. development and acquisition of EW capabilities and systems. Uh, David's been on the show before, and it's great to have him back. Thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Yeah, Ken, always a pleasure. Uh, enjoy talking about this topic, So, uh, and, and I'm happy to give update status on where we've been going over the past year. E- excellent. You, know, you, you cover down on so many different topics. We'll try to get to as many as we can today, but uh, at this morning's uh, keynote, there was an announcement of a new effort, a new office being stood up, and I was wondering if you could shed some light on, on that and how it affects your, your, your department. Sure. So uh, I think there's been a recognition within the Department of Defense that we have challenges when it comes to acquiring joint capabilities and acquiring missions that cut across multiple systems and multiple services. So within ANS, they're, they're pursuing a, a new office that, that would look at how do you acquire joint capabilities? What is the method for doing that? What are the What are the budgeting approaches that you need to take to be able to either augment service programs of record so that they can address what we call purple requirements that are not specific to services but are joint requirements that aren't specific to services? Uh, And then what's the acquisition approach to get there? How do you do do that? Uh, Is it new joint acquisition programs? It, it's challenging when you when you call it a program because it is a their systems of systems problems and each one of those systems has their own service specific mission requirements associated with it. so it becomes this interoperability challenge I think we see it play out in things like JADC2 we see it play out in, in counter ISRNT we see it play out on a, on a wide variety of topics where they're very cross cutting we need joint capabilities and we have a challenging infrastructure right now for actually acquiring creating requirements for it, and then acquiring against those requirements. And is, it, this seems to be a really important step because this has been a, an ongoing conversation about you know the, the, the current acquisition process that we have to follow kind of stifles out some of the innovation, some of the jointness and, and, and collaboration that we need to face emerging threats on a, on, on, on a much more rapid turnaround schedule than we can do. We can do. So uh, do you see that this office is going to, this is like the next evolution in how uh, our, our uh, DOD bureaucracy can kind of address some of these challenges internally and, and, and kind of get things to the field sooner? Yeah, in fact, I think that's part of the reason I've been asked to help stand up this office. So, so over the past two years since I've been in the position, I've been using my limited resources to fund what I call cross-service feasibility analysis and, and uh, experiments. And, and in those cases, what, what we do from our kind of purple position on EW is we can see across the services on what the services are working on and what they consider their challenges and threats. 
And because we can do that, we can see that, hey, the Navy has a capability to address this problem that, say, the Army or the Air Force is now considering. And, and we use our, our little amount of funds to, to do a study on, is the Navy capability applicable to this Army problem? Can we, can we take those Army developers and those Navy developers, put them together in the room, and then hash out, could you use this Navy system for that Army problem? And we found out repeatedly, the answer is yes, right? You can. Uh, and so, so I've, been, I've been announcing that. I've been, I've been highlighting the opportunities to do that. I've been highlighting the results that we've been getting out of taking a Navy system off of a ship, putting wheels on it, painting it green, and, dra and dragging it out into a field and showing that you can use it for a common threat or even – it doesn't even have to be a common threat. It's just that when you look at it from a spectrum perspective, you can use that piece of hardware to do another spectrum technique. And we've seen success in that. And I, and I think that, that highlighting those opportunities and then pointing out that – there is no requirement to do this, right? There is, in some cases, there's not a requirement for the Army to acquire this capability that the Navy has, mm -hmm. but the operator will benefit from it. You can get it there faster than going through kind of recreating requirements with the Army, and we're trying to highlight that. Yeah, we've been uh, talking, one of the threads through this week um, has been innovation, and, and you know, oftentimes when we think about innovation, and we were talking about this with John Knowles yesterday, we, we think of new, new, new stuff yep. um, out in the field that hasn't been maybe fielded or tested yet. But, but another part of innovation is really optimizing what you already have and understanding that uh, there might be already a solution out there that we just haven't looked at in a in, in a different way that can actually do just as good or if not better of a job than a new technology. So um, is this new effort going to help under, help to optimize innovation internally with existing systems and, and, and kind of compare that with some new solutions that could be on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the role. And, and as we look at the, the technologies that are coming out of S&T and the technologies that are coming out of the the OSD RNA Raider programs. One of the one of the ideas there is, how do you how do you streamline the transition of those types of technologies, and then at the same time, how do you streamline the the delivery of a capability against some some pop up threat? And, and in both cases, it could be either or. It could be that you need a new technology, and there's a lot of cases you do that. But in another case, it could be repurposing an existing technology. And I think that that uh, we talked about this yesterday in the panel that. Um, that one of the one of the revelations that we've had as we've looked across this space is that we're not talking we don't need to talk about a navy system we don't need to talk about an army system we're talking about threats we're talking about the spectrum uh, we're very often talking about a capability that that is independent of a service and so because we can do that if a service has a capability then we need to be considering can i use that capability for another service so the office would both be looking at how do, I, how do I transition joint capability that's coming out of joint S&T, right? And then how, do I, how can I uh, address one service's capabilities through the availability of another service's technology? Uh, now, when you were t talking about the office, you, you, uh, you dropped a number of different capability areas and factors, variables, um, and we're going to try to get up to a, many of them. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of dive into a couple of them first because you, you've been speaking, well, you spoke on a panel yesterday. You're going to speak on another panel today. Congratulations on having two sessions in one uh, that, that keeps you busy. Um, but I, I first wanted to talk with you about uh, electro, uh, electromagnetic protection. Um, when you were on the sh uh, from the crow's nest here about a year ago, uh, this was a big topic that we discussed, and you know, I over the course of the year and in, in different engagements and different shows, I've often referenced what you said about the challenge of addressing EP, uh, in part because there's 
not the same community of EP that you would find with electronic attack or electronic support or spectrum management. And that makes it hard because it's, it's kind of spread out into different disparate programs. Um, wanted to kind of get your kind of state of the union on EP to kick us off um, and, and, and also kind of help people understand how that's evolved over the last year. Yeah, it, we, we've made progress. And I think uh, uh, not, not in small part to the, the whole MSO CFT push, the EMS superiority strategy. I think that, that one of the things I was able to use that, that effort to harp on was that there is a hole in the, in the EW plus spectrum management for MSO um, plan in that EP is not in EW the way we required. If you look it up on Wikipedia, it is. But if you look up, uh, uh, if you, if you, Examine the way the DoD acquires systems. EP is not acquired as part of an EW community. It's part of radars, comms, and PNT. And so through that EMS superiority push, we were able to emphasize that, that we need to bring in those other spectrum users. We need to, to highlight the importance of good EMS survivability and good EP techniques in their systems. And in the process of doing that, we had coincidental events that just amplified it. And one was the 5G radar altimeter interference report that came out and it was all over the news about, hey, there's, a, there's potentially a, a problem here between uh, the 5G transmitters and the radar altimeters on commercial military aircraft. And we were able to use that as a leverage point to highlight that that's neither of those neither of those are EW right that's mm-hmm. a that's a 5G comms and that's a that's a radar problem that EW is not involved at all but here you have essentially an EP problem because the concern is that this one sensor can't survive in the presence of the other sensor so we need to figure that out so that allowed us to highlight it there then you had the the events in the Ukraine with Starlink and I've talked about this mm-hmm. before that that. The, the significance of assured comms in that Ukraine uh, operation is going to be really interesting to do a, a analysis on after the fact to determine what was the impact. I think... Uh, and, and, and can I start with you? Because I want to actually cover this a little bit. You said you've been talking about it a, a little bit. Um, I feel like there's a little... Maybe, maybe not as much understanding about exactly what happened that we can talk about. So could you provide just a little bit of background so that we have a proper context of how to think about that? Because that was a critical... A turning point or a event that kind of set the stage for the, the next period of time with the conflict. So could you talk a little bit more about that in this in this forum? Uh, a little bit. So we did reach out. We talked to the SpaceX engineers. We we learned more about what, what had occurred. And, and what they pointed out is that really that, that proliferated LEO network of satellites is a self-healing network. And so if you attack one of the nodes, the network will heal itself. And, and that's EP, right? Yeah. That's EP in and of itself. So they they had recognized that that if they could they could deploy a self healing network that that a jamming effect would have very little impact on what they were trying to do. Now they did they did have to make some software modifications to accommodate some of the attacks, but but that that also proved the point that 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 in flight modification of the software to to increase your EMS survivability was invaluable too, and it helped also footstomp not just the value of EP, but the value of software reprogrammability and upgradable uh, in the field. And, and having a system, a self-healing system like that can kind of help you narrow exactly a more targeted response to areas that maybe you need to invest more energy or time or effort into fixing for the future. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think I think the proliferated Leo nature of, of uh, Starlink in and of itself is EP. And, mm-hmm. and I, as an EW guy, when I look at that challenge of, uh, you know, a number of satellites screaming across the sky at any given time, and any one of them can be the access point to the network. And EW, trying to defeat that with EW when they're they're replenishing themselves on the fly, constantly coming over, that's a nightmare. Yeah. And and it's particularly a nightmare if you're trying to do it with a dish, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the low-cost way of trying to deny 
to deny that link. If you do it with a dish, there's no way you're going to be able to pull it off of the dish. So it drives you to more exquisite, more expensive solutions. Um, and even with the exquisite, more expensive solutions, there's, there's a lot of them. There's more, there's more, more of them. They're self-healing. You attack one, and they're gonna, the rest of them will figure out how to route the information. That, that's a really hard problem. So, so do you find that uh, DOD is, is evolving properly in this notion of being able to classify or label something that, hey, th this happened over here. Uh, it's an EP problem, and, to, and having that trigger the right uh, subject matter expertise, technicians, technologists to, to work on that problem from an EP perspective, or are they still kind of misunderstanding what is an EP problem? Uh, because understand, I mean, we, we've always had this issue with EW of metrics and understanding the effect that EW has, and that's from a user perspective when you're actually, um, you know, from an offensive EW perspective, you're using a system, you can jam or whatever, but EP is just, the, the user interacts with that much differently. So are we evolving properly to recognize, yeah, this is an EP problem, we need to get these people involved? Yes, we are. And so, so one of the other uh, um, uh, pieces that came out of that uh, EMS superiority strategy was the stand-up of the EMS senior steering group. Mm -hmm. And so within the department, you've got the EWXCOM who focuses on EW challenges. You've got the C3LB or the comms command and control leadership board that focuses on interoperability of communications. You've got the PNT advisory council that focuses on PNT. Those are all leadership groups. And, and historically, those leadership groups were not connected in terms of what's going on within them and how can they collaboratively work together. The EMS Senior Steering Group has been stood up to create the connective tissue across those communities. So when the EWXCOM comes in and we talk about EP challenges that have occurred or been realized in an exercise but are outside of the EW world, right? maybe it's a comms link has been degraded or a radar has been degraded, we can go to that EMS Senior Steering Group and say, during this exercise, we recognize this challenge. The EMS SSG needs to review that and then delegate it out. And so the EMS SSG can then look at it and say, you know what, the tactical radio working group needs to come back with an answer on how do you, how do you fix this. And I think the, the, we're, we're also starting to incorporate the need for EP, both in terms of sensors and operators, uh, during the exercises. And so I talked yesterday about how what we've seen happen in recent exercises lately is that, that the operators are being told to fight through it. Right? So historically, they'd turn a jammer on, the operator would say, I'd see you're jamming. Um, now turn it off so I can complete the, the exercise. And, and, uh, and historically, the answer would be, okay, they turn it off and let them complete the exercise. But that's not the answer now, right? Now mm -hmm. the answer, the operator says, all right, I see it, turn it off. And they're being told, we're not turning it off. You've got to figure out how to work through it. And, and that's invaluable. And, I, and I've, I've sat in the back of AWACS. I've seen all kinds of stuff going on. And, I, and it's invaluable for the operators to have to deal with it because the operators are innovative of themselves and, mm -hmm. and they, will, they will flesh out TTPs, they'll figure out workarounds. I've seen it happen. I've, I've come back to the Pentagon and said, hey, you know, we're, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on this problem. I just watched an operator figure out a workaround on it while he was, he was out in flight. And, and so I think the opportunities to put both the systems and the operators under test helps with EMS survivability and helps with EP. And I, I think we, we touched on that a little bit last time or in, in, in a previous conversation about kind of embedding the, the warfighter, the operator earlier in development, getting their feedback because sometimes they can uh, spot operational, uh, an issue with operational relevance of a certain technology or how it works or responds to a threat. Um, and and is, is that kind of, are you seeing that a lot more in terms of early, just earlier in development? Now, you, know, you get, get it on the, out in the field and test it out there, but like even earlier, hey, let's, you know, what, what do the warfighters think of like how they could use this and, and get their say earlier in the, in, in the process? So I think we, we are, and I think uh, uh, the R&E programs like Raider and JCTD are allowing that to happen. 
Um, I have seen I have seen plans that incorporate the operator right in the beginning. DARPA programs that are looking at bringing the operators in on day one, um, putting them in the seats and saying this is what we're planning to do. So I have seen it. It's not formalized process for doing that, but I've I've seen the the uh, kind of the architecture that would that allows it to happen better. And Raider is a very good example mm-hmm. of that, where you're taking a technology, trying to to mature it and show it, put it in the operator's hands, and getting the operator feedback for rapid transition. Um, I think we're starting to see that happen. Great. Um, so, so uh, I mentioned earlier your your couple different sessions, and and I want to make sure I get to to another topic that I know is very important to you, um, and that's the standards, open standards. Um, and I know that that's one of the topics you're going to be talking about. Um, there's been a lot of progress over there um, with the open standards in each of the services, particularly Air Force. I'm thinking Air Force with the SOSA standards and and the Army with CMOS and so forth. So um, can you give us a kind of a, 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 a cover down on what, where, where are we at with the standards debate? Kind of what are some of the challenges, particularly I think with conformance and getting that out to industry and making sure that they're meeting the standards and so forth? What are some of the things that you're going to be uh, working on here in the coming months? Yeah, so I think, so the debate, that debate continues, right? And, and I think that, that there are room, there's room for standards. There's also rooms for things like translators, right? And, and, and there's actually a, a, a business case to be made about whether you should conform to standards or whether you should put a translator <laughs> between, between your system and the standards. And, and in some cases, you can, you can point out that it's actually more efficient to put a translator in the place. And, and that's true of anything that's legacy, right? Anything yeah. that hasn't been, uh, um, hasn't been built to CMOS or SOS or anything like that. Um, we'll need to, to be, if you really want it to be interoperable, you want to do it quick, then things like stitches, things like tracks are, are, good, are good ways of making that happen. And they're, they're effectively, they're efficient for doing it. Um, but when it comes to building new systems, and particularly EW Spectrum using systems that, that can be used for multiple purposes, providing government reference architectures on how you apply the standards, I think, is, is what we're trying to push, right? And so this is where CMOS becomes invaluable. Uh, CMOS has already been generating those systems, has already, MFU Air Large is a system that is CMOS compliant. TLS BCT is another system um, that, that, it's, that is aligning with CMOS. I think as we start to see the systems evolve and we recognize that, that a lot of that is associated with the SOSA consortium, which is mm-hmm. 150 industry players, I mentioned this yesterday, the DOD needs to embrace that industry consortium that is evolving the suite of standards and start generating the government reference architectures on how to use the standards, not come in with a stick and say, thou shalt use this standard and you're going to do it now. It's more of a let's refer people on how to use the standards. And, it, and, it, and, and I think the industry consortiums will, will help evolve that. So, so do you think that they're taking the right, the right path where, you know, uh, uh, Conforming to certain standards can be cumbersome, particularly on smaller or medium-sized companies that want to enter into the into the market and in, into DoD, doing business with DoD. But there's a standard out there that uh, maybe is very costly for a smaller or medium company to to uh, to conform to. Um, are you seeing DoD really making an effort to um, help help understand how they can continue to 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 compete in in the in the marketplace? Yeah, I think I think one of the one of the justifications for going down those paths is to open it up to those smaller companies. And so I think 
I think when you get to the point where the smaller company wants to play, well, then then the cost of conforming with those standards becomes part of the budget that they that they provide to the DoD. But it's still it's going to be a fraction of the cost of what it, of what it would be for them to go through industry prime and then be subject to the rules of the industry prime. Rather, they can instead come to the government, the government do a best of breed and fund them mm -hmm. right to to conform to the standards as part of their proposal process. Hello everyone, I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Another topic that you uh, discussed in your previous presentation here yesterday, you were talking about uh, counter C5ISRNT. And I'll let you describe exactly what that encompasses, and 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 I, you know, there, it's a 
probably the, the longest acronym. We keep adding numbers and letters to things. Yeah, but yeah, could indeed. you go in a little bit about what that means and and how what what is your role in kind of advancing this this initiative? Yeah. So I think. Um, so what we are recognizing, we've been recognizing this for a while, I think the Navy has recognized this for a while, and where I got involved in it, is that we've historically thought of EW as a defensive, very tactical capability, right? It, it's, it's a inbound missile, I'm going to do some jamming and try to deny the jammer, I'm going to do platform protection, uh, I'm going to do some suppression enemy air defense, like these types of things that are essentially platform protection, smaller scale, tactical. But with the recognition that the threats are, are, are growing, they're, they're getting longer range, all these things, the sensors are longer range, there's a recognition that it's no longer really that defensive tactical problem, it's becoming more of an offensive strategic problem. Mm -hmm. And so to really to protect our operations, we have to engage to the left of launch, right? It's not, it's not uh, waiting for the missile and then trying to swat at the missile as it comes in, but actually trying to deny the sensor infrastructure that's providing the feeds so that the missile can shoot. And so that's more of an offensive EW mission, and it, and it drives you to left of launch capabilities. So within the Navy, we originally called it counter ISR, right? We were, we were starting to work in that world of information operations, information warfare, and we were, we were talking about how do you do EW from far left of launch all the way up through terminal phase on the missile. Over time, it, it migrated to counter ISR and T, so it was not just deny the surveillance, but also divide the, or to deny the targeting aspect of that, so counter ISR and T. Then it became counter C2 ISRNT, and now it's counter C5 ISRNT. So you could almost consider it this, this loose scope creep just on the acronym. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about how do you engage left of launch strategically and offensively to protect your operations. And well, there's, there's multiple elements. There's cyber elements. There's EW elements. The EW really gets after the spectrum elements of that. The, 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 we were having a conversation earlier uh, on the podcast, but we were talking about this notion of building a fabric or, or, or web, or, you know, and, and the more you're connecting and the more you're developing the fabric, the more complicated you mm. see that fabric because you're, you're now, particularly from the EMS side, you are not just dealing with military technology, military sensors, you're, you have commercial sensors, you have other, you know, uh, public sector sec sensors that you're just trying to figure out how to how do they network and what do you what information are you gleaning from that how do you process that and get that through gateways in in the military um, so I can understand why you would end up continually growing these acronyms but you you mentioned it is kind of like a little bit of creep in the scope and do, and doesn't that put some pressure in terms of the funding for some of these efforts because we always hear about creep mission creep and so forth and it's always kind of the it's one of the big things that drags down a lot of EW programs because you start to see the enormity of the problem. So how are you kind of addressing this, coming up with affordable solutions to an ever increasing complicated fabric? Yeah, and I think that's where this whole cross-service analysis is, becomes really important. How do you acquire joint things and how do you connect systems to systems becomes really important because very often when you break down what are all those modes that we're worried about, you will find that somebody's working on it. It could be the Navy's working on it. The Air Force could be working on it. So you don't want everybody to work on it, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it becomes critically important at that point to recognize that maybe the Navy has a solution, that we need to understand how to get it into a government reference architecture so that the Army can use it or that the Air Force can use it, and we don't have to build it again. So that, that's really how you get at the efficiency there. Uh, and then you start thinking about, well, how do I now enable these systems of systems, these counter C5 ISRNT missions to exist given that the, the capabilities are disparate and across the different services, and now you get into that, how do I acquire a mission? Right? Mm -hmm. How do I create the interoperability? How do I get to JADC2? Um, how do I define JADC2 even, really, right? Um, 
And, and so all of those things play out. And I think it, it is not a, it's not something that we're starting from scratch on. So it's not something that we've said, hey, we got to address this counter C5 ISRNT. So we need to start developing systems from scratch. There's a lot of doing portfolio management accounts against counter C5 ISRNT, understanding what capabilities are in that portfolio, understanding where the capability gaps are, understanding where the programs are, understanding where the programmatic gaps are, and then, and then pointing S&T towards those gaps and trying to acquire the systems, understanding what the red, yellow, green means on a, on a program cost schedule and performance chart, right? Not just in terms of a program, but in terms of a mission. So I have one last question, and, and I wanted to discuss another topic that I know is very important to you. Um, at the show this this week is being distributed the, the current issue of our Journal of Electromagnetic Defense, uh, and the topic is space. And I know that that's something that you worked very hard on recently and uh, have been talking about here at the convention. So uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of EW in space and how, how that relationship is, is evolving here. Yeah, and I think it plays right back into that counter C5 ISRNT discussion. Sensors are becoming long-range, engagements are becoming long-range. We need to be able to see over the horizon. We need to be able to, to turn off emitters so that emitters can't be targeted, and we need to achieve battle space awareness in the absence of a signature, really. Uh, so one of the important aspects of that is being able to see things from above. And, and uh, the significance of Space Force, Space Development Agency, and SpaceCom is that they have DOD Title X authority in space, which means that the, that the space assets are owned by the DOD. And, and that's significant because historically, if we wanted to do something tactical with a space sensor, right, just detecting a signal, for instance, you'd have to go to the intelligence community. You'd have to get access to the intelligence community infrastructure. You'd have to figure out how to interoperate with that, that infrastructure. And you would take all of the latencies associated with that process. And, and so the, the people that were doing that were measuring their success based on how quickly they could take information to the tactical edge. Now that you've got that Title X DOD asset in space, now you can get the information over a tactical data link, and that's the, the things that um, Space Development Agency is working on, is how do you make the data tactically available? So now you've got a, a, a sensor that's 1,200 kilometers in the air, providing you essentially overwatch. And then, mm -hmm. and then SDA is doing it in a proliferated fashion. So it's a lot of satellites overhead with tactical data links to your platforms on the ground. Now you can see over the horizon, you can detect over the horizon, you can find things over the horizon without turning on your emitters, uh, and you can get direct directly off of those space assets. And, and that to me is profound. I think one of the significant points to be made is that for Spacecom, their area of regard, or their AOR, is space, right? So in the same way that Indopaycom's area of regard is that Indopaycom region or, or UCOM's area of regard is Europe, Spacecom's area of regard is space. Mm -hmm. So it is now an operational domain within which we can do tactical operations and we can access information to support our EW missions, particularly for long-range um, uh, capabilities and over-the-horizon types of awareness. Thank you, Dave. That is all the time we have for today's episode. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule here at, at uh, AOC 2022 to sit down and chat a little bit about uh, some of the, the, the key initiatives your office is working on, and I greatly appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Ken. Always a pleasure. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, Dave Tremper, for joining me. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners. So please feel free to share your thoughts and recommendations. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, 
powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.